Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. Located in the foothills of Wyoming's spectacular Wind River Range, Wyoming Catholic College, an accredited four-year Great Books institution, is built on the ancient Western tradition of the liberal arts and the freedom of the American West. The college offers its students an immersion in the primary sources of the classical tradition, the grandeur of the mountain wilderness, and the spiritual heritage of the Catholic Church. Students experience the illumination of imagination and intellect through the great books and traditional disciplines, literature and philosophy, mathematics and theology, science and Latin, and an outdoor program second to none. The college celebrated an in-person graduation with its seniors last year and welcomed its largest freshman class ever this year. Learn more about the college's unique space in the world of American higher education at wyomingcatholic.edu. Jonathan Van Bell is an independent scholar and co-editor of the anthology Be Not Afraid of Life, in the words of William James. He has a new book co-authored with John Cog, Keg, uh, you, you'll, 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 you'll correct my pronunciation, <laughs> John, yeah, entitled Henry at Work, Thoreau on Making a Living, our topic today. Welcome, Mr. Van Bell. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, first of all, yeah. Pronounce your co-author's name. John Keg. John Keg. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Great. Uh, now you're. We'll jump right into the book as we do here. Your first chapter has the same title as the first chapter of Walden, Economy. Does that title conflict a bit with the popular impression of Thoreau? It does. I think Thoreau is often seen as uh, a naturalist, uh, sort of philosopher. You know, he's an essayist and all this, but we wanted to step back. Those are both, those are all true, but we wanted to step back and look at his experience from an economic point of view, his, his, his example uh, of his, the jobs he took, the life he lived, what he thought about work. And he puts this front and center in Walden, as you, as you mentioned, economy. Um, it's one of the longest chapters in the book, Walden. It's a, a sort of dry, hard reading, It's a, uh, but it's filled with so much uh, humor and insight that it's, it's often overlooked. So we talk about economy in terms of the original kind of Greek sense, and he does too, of the oikos nomos, the laws of the home, the family, the family's land. And I think we point to the idea that he is really focusing on the home. He's focusing on home life. He's focusing on home economics, as we might call it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, please. And, and, and it begins, I mean, I mean when, you, when you read e economy, Thoreau himself begins with so many mundane details, such as the costs and materials of his little hut. Why begin with that? I think that he wants to show how little we, can, we, can, we need. He's, he's go, he went to Walden Pond because he said he wanted to front the essential facts of life. He wanted to live deliberately. And this meant seeing what, uh, finding what he calls the necessaries of the soul. The necessaries of the soul would be, you know, like the Maslow's hierarchy of needs kind of thing, the shelter, food, clothing. He would include love in that too, sources of warmth, what he calls hmm. vital heat. And so he wants to show with these details that, look, I don't need that much. I need a few of these, you know, little sugar, some beans, some reclaimed wood, and I can live this very flourishing human existence. You know, you, you note that Thoreau was a teacher 
for a time. And it's pretty clear that we have a didactic purpose in much of Walden, you know, to wake my neighbors up. Uh, was he dissatisfied with being a teacher in, in a classroom? What, what, what led him to, to move on? That's an excellent question. He, he thought of teaching as his initial occupational goal. He, out of Harvard, which he graduated uh, Harvard, 1837, he went, he had a job at uh, the Concord Academy, which actually had a starting, his starting teaching position was about $500 a year uh, salary, which is top dollar in Concord. Uh, but he, yeah. he quit in the second week uh, because he had issues with the uh, corporal punishment applied to the students. But he still loved teaching. I mean, later on, he opened up a school with his brother, John Thoreau. Uh, it was a short-lived school because John Thoreau's health um, unfortunately, didn't allow the school to continue, but he had a he wanted to include more field trips, more vocational elements, not just rote memorization. He wanted to include um, things like surveying and uh, also more philosophical, almost like the the uh, the peripatetic schools of ancient Athens, where you'd walk around and learn a very embodied hmm. form of learning. Uh, so he hmm. he really loved teaching, but not a certain kind of strict form of teaching that he also got in his Harvard experience um, under the Harvard president, Josiah Quincy had a scale of merit idea, which was kind of, we talk about this with uh, micromanaging in chapter two. Well, the, the scale of merit was a way of just pinpointing every little detail of the student's life and ranking it. So uh, in Harvard at the time, they'd wake up and they'd go to church. Were you whispering too much in church? Uh, were you doing this wrong? Did you you know, were you on time for that class? And that would determine your scholarships and other kinds of financial things. And I think Thoreau despised that kind of micromanagement. He thought it was much too uh, strict. Yeah, yeah. Just, just quick, uh, John had tuberculosis. Is, is that right, if I remember? Yeah, yes, uh, and, and Henry too. Did Thoreau, did Henry nurse him? Henry... For... A time, I'm trying to think. Yeah, so uh, John dies of, of lockjaw. He got some kind of infection uh, from shaving. And he, he uh, huh. actually, he was nursed by Henry. And in fact, he, uh, John Thoreau dies in Henry's arms. Uh, it's very yeah. uh, powerful. And it, it affected him for the rest of his life. He was extremely close with his older brother. Yeah. And Henry himself died of? He died of tuberculosis. He died of t complications from his... From tuberculosis from uh, his his health in 1862 um, and his younger sister Sophia actually was there nursing him you know reading to him reading some of his old work to him um, so mm -hmm. he was very close with his family and they all suffered uh, from that and and I think that's yeah. another point to make about home economics is um, Thoreau is known for living in Walden Pond in this little hut but it was only two years two months and two days of his life the yeah. remainder of his life, he's actually living with families in a kind of multi-generational home. Um, so of the 11 plus houses he lived throughout his life, he is with others, fam uh, his family, uh, which is a very economic thing to do. A lot of people nowadays think, oh, I have to go get my own home, you know, and uh, be independent. But we have a trend now more because of economic recession of people staying at home with families and having multi-generational households. 
So he was yeah. he, he he should be remembered for that as well. When we get to uh, issues of of economics and and work, you note that Thoreau shares with the leading theorist of work at the time, Karl Marx, a conception of alienation of labor. Uh, actually, tell us tell us Marx's con- conception of that, and and how does Thoreau's maybe differ one way or another? Yeah, so um, I think Thoreau would take a more individualist point of view on this. So there were some experiments around his time, Fruitlands, other kinds of co- commune experiments, and he didn't really want to participate them, in them. No. He said something to the effect that he'd rather have a, um, a hut in hell or something like this than a boarding house in heaven. He didn't want to be a, a, in that situation. <laughs> so he wanted to focus on the individual and their development and um, versus a kind of replacing the... Uh, generic uh, uh, worker with the generic uh, uh, proletariat or anything like that. He was, he was much more focused at the individual level and how we can live deliberately, not they or other things like that. And um, he, so I think there's that difference between him, him and Marx. Um, but I do think that his, his uh, economic views are definitely lean towards getting off the backs of others, as he put it. So um, trying to be self-sufficient so that you're not creating these negative externalities on others. Uh, you're not buying superfluous goods, which create all kinds of um, negative impacts. Uh, for instance, in his time in, in Walden, he lived Walden Pond, actually, there were a lot of Irish immigrants who would work on the railroads in that area. And I think he saw the conditions there, the very poor conditions, and he thought this was uh, a very unfortunate uh, effect and he talked about people riding on the railways are also riding on these um, Irish immigrants uh, in a metaphor mm. that is very striking. Uh, yeah, and say can you know can we do without certain things to help? He was a, he was a charitable man. He actually raised a subscription paper for an Irish laborer uh, who his he this Irish laborer had won a prize shoveling four dollars and his employer. Um, decided, well, that's my $4. Uh, this huh. incensed Thoreau, and he raised subscription paper from, from Concordians to recoup that. Um, and unfortunately, he was underwhelmed by the charity and generosity of his community. But he, he, he <laughs> definitely had a sense of making sure everyone lives up to a level because that was his goal, living up to a kind of heroic or grand flourishing human life and making sure that uh, that everyone had that opportunity. Yeah, I think in, in terms of joining groups, it, it really, the group, the principal, he, he might agree with 100%, but I will not be part of it. I think his sisters wanted him to join an abolitionist group and, and he wouldn't do it, but then he becomes, it, was he the most prominent defender of John Brown in America? Yes. At the time? Yes. He, at that time, yeah. He was, he, was, he wrote several essays he was a big defender of John Brown. He um, so Thoreau was friends with Ralph Waldo Emerson, who came along more slowly to the abolitionist cause, part partially because of Thoreau's. Well, he came to it because of Thoreau's uh, own impassioned view, uh, abolitionist views. Thoreau helped uh, s- slaves escape uh, through the. He sent he put them on put one on a train to leave, and he uh, hosted an abolitionist party at his at his uh, pond house. 
so he was very much involved in that and very much um, uh, do it now, don't wait kind of kind of abolitionist. Uh, you know, yeah. he's he famous for spending his night in jail for basically uh, back taxes, back poll taxes of all things. Uh, and so he was willing to put his uh, money where his mouth is. He was willing to sacrifice for that. In fact, in the in the one thing to note for for people about his jail experience, which led to the amazing and famous essay, justly famous, civil disobedience, is that he would have spent more time in jail. He wanted to spend more time in jail, yes. but his uh, some anonymous donor paid the back taxes, and uh, we think it's his aunt Maria Thoreau. And he was kind of thrown out because he didn't want to leave. He thought, you know, in an unjust <laughs> society, the just man will be found in jail. Like mm-hmm. this, of mm-hmm. course, later influenced Martin Luther King Jr. and Gandhi. Um, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. In the next chapter, you note that today's job market, and this leads to where where Henry. Henry still has lessons for us in the 21st century. Today's job market requires the young person be flexible and mobile. You know, the economy changes so quickly that you've got to be able to jump from post to post. Thoreau was kind of a pioneer of this lifestyle, you say, mm-hmm. wasn't he? He was. So, you know, we talk about his biography, but he kind of wrote his own short biography for the 10th. There was a 10th anniversary questionnaire from his alma mater, which was Harvard. And he wrote this description of himself. He says, I am a schoolmaster, a private tutor, a surveyor, a gardener, a farmer, a painter. I mean, a house painter, a carpenter, Mm -hmm. a mason, a day laborer, a pencil maker, a glass paper maker, a writer, and sometimes a poetaster, which means an inferior poet. (laughs) So he's knocking, knocking himself. So you see there, he had a lot of gig labor. You know, he would be the one driving the Uber. He would be the one doing uh, the dog walking. He said that of all the occupations, he found himself most independent as a day laborer. So, you know, he did everything from build houses, his own included, to shovel manure, to um, actually taking care of children. He took care of Ralph Waldo Emerson's children. Um, so I think he shows that he he's kind of prides himself on the idea that he's not stuck to any schedule. He's not stuck to any kind of these conventions. He's free. Even though he may be more, he may be poor, or he may be looked down on as you know not having one career, he has this amazing freedom, and I think it's an inspiration. He was an inspiration. Um, he had a kind of renaissance in the Great Depression. A lot of people uh, hmm. started rethrowing the Great Depression and realized that he was someone who didn't insult them if they didn't have a, a dime in their pocket. He was actually um, a source of inspiration and hope. For people who were down and out. You you insist, though, that Thoreau does not romanticize poverty, uh, though he does write at one point, and you quote this, quote, congratulate myself uh, on on his so-called poverty. What did he mean by that? Well, I think he, yeah, you're right to say he doesn't uh, romanticize poverty. He was, he was well aware of, uh, as I say, uh, as I said earlier, with um, uh, the Irish immigrants, Walden at that time was kind of a, a place for outcasts and exploited people. This included ex-slaves, uh, Brister Freeman and Zilpa White, his sister, were freed slaves who lived in this area. They wove, uh, Zilpa wove linen, made brooms for a living. So I think he recognized that it's there's a kind of um, 
luxury in it. It's a, but he's he's aiming, he's he's talking to a lot of people who can do this. He says, you know, if if this coat doesn't fit you, then so be it. If, you know, but it stretches. It's able to to maneuver um, in a way that will fit a lot of people's lives. So he he's saying mm. that uh, his 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 situation can be an example. He's not telling every, he's like, this is not a categorical imperative, um, but it is an option. And yeah. Yeah. Let's pause for a moment to ask if you were looking for a Catholic university where the greatest works of Western and Catholic tradition are the foundation for learning, all in an environment that is faithful to the magisterium. That's the University of Dallas in Irving, Texas. Recommended by the Cardinal Newman Society, the university offers an exceptional liberal arts education with undergraduate and graduate programs in arts and sciences, business, and ministry, as well as a campus in Rome, Italy, all of them preserving the wisdom of the past while preparing students for world-changing futures. Academically excellent, always faithful. Apply today at udallas.edu. You you note that he he would sort of confounded his friends and acquaintances, including Emerson. And you, you note Emerson's remark after Thoreau's death, quote, I cannot help counting it a fault in him that he had no ambition. What did Emerson mean by that? I mean, when we look at Thoreau, look at the, look, you know, one of the giants. Mm-hmm. He had no, uh, why would Emerson say he had no ambition? Well, you know, he was because of that kind of bouncing around. As a, yeah, I think because of that bouncing around, and he was Emerson wasn't the only one to kind of make that remark. So another friend of Thoreau's, uh, Nathaniel Hawthorne, he he wrote that uh, Thoreau has repudiated all regular modes of getting living and seems inclined to lead huh. a sort of Indian life. He calls it among civilized men. Uh, he, he means uh, there is an Indian life in respects to the absence of any systematic effort for a livelihood. So I think that's what Emerson's meaning too, is there's no systematic effort to make money. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, he wants truth above all he says, and he wants to live a life that you see Socrates lived, which was a life of poverty, but not just for the sake of poverty, but for the sake of independence of thought and independence of all kinds of uh, liberty to be who you are. So I think um, Emerson, also it should be noted that, you know, Thoreau and Emerson's friendship by that time, by the death, had sort of come apart a little bit. They had disagreements. So I think there's mm-hmm. there's a little bit of um, critique, unfair critique in what Emerson said there. Uh, but it, yeah. it because he, he definitely was uh, ambitious in that narrow sense of like, I want a, 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 you know, financial success is not there in Thoreau. But he had ambition to be a great writer. He had ambition to to live a very philosophical life. So I would just put that to Emerson. Yeah. Uh, you discussed Thoreau's work habits, his schedule, daily schedule at, at Walden. What, what what kind of routines did we see? Well, so he um, often would... Uh, well, he had his bean rows, so... Small farming was one of his things, but uh, and then writing, of course, writing. His friend, um, I'm blanking on the name now, but he said that Walden was a wooden inkstand. The furious amount of writing he did there, and that's one of the reasons he actually went there, was uh, hmm. to write his first book, which turned out to be a week on the Concord and Merrimack Rivers, 
uh, which was a not a success, it should be said. But he, uh, his other, he, he kind of spurned morning work with one hand, like you know, dusting things or anything. But then he did say, "Get all your work done before the dawn." There's a there's a tension there we talk about in the book, because essentially his schedule was open. He did kind of whatever he felt like, he whatever was he was called to do at the time, um, and he uh, he had uh, watermelon parties there, so famous watermelon parties. <laughs> his door was always open. He didn't like it to be too crowded, so he did have visitors. No. He wasn't a hermit. He had you know. Uh, Walden Ponds, quite close to downtown Concord. Uh, people would walk along and come in and join him. Uh, so he had, and he would go also into town and talk with his family. Uh, so his schedule was um, very free, honestly. And he, uh, writing was the main focus, though, because that was his yep. main ambition. When you look at his what his influences, and you go back to the ancient world, you find the Stoics meant a lot to Thoreau. Well, what did he take from them? I think he, he took a couple of things. So the Stoic metaphysics of being in harmony with the natural law, the natural order of things. And, and he took this very seriously. He looked to the seasons. I mean, Walden is, is structured around the seasons. He looked to uh, cycles of of birth and death in uh, flora and fauna as almost metaphors for how we can conduct our lives. So the biological rhythms. Um, and I think the Stoics had a similar thing of living according to these cycles and these rhythms and not trying to fight it, but trying to embrace it. Um, he also took a sense of principled uh, or moral um, effort, the idea that you should try to, you know, because not, not just the cycles of nature, but the principles of nature, as the Stoics would have it, are, um, are necessary for the, for the good or flourishing life. Uh, I think uh, his, one of, he, I mean, he loved the Roman writers. His, one of his favorite Roman writers, the poet Virgil, has uh, a work called The Georgics. It's not as famous as the Aeneid, but the Georgics was a real inspiration for Thoreau uh, because it showed the Roman farmer. Um, yeah. It basically a self-sufficient Roman countryman who was the cornerstone of the, the Roman Republic. And he saw, uh, as Virgil did, that, that, to go back to home economics, that focus on being self-sufficient, being, being strong, heroic in that non-famous way, but heroic in the terms of your, your, your effort in life, is the, is the foundation for a healthy Roman Republic. And in his view, since his early days of America, the cornerstone of a healthy American Republic. Um, basically, not just lip service for independence, but literal at the level of the individual independence. Yeah, yeah. You note the the degradation of labor, the, the rise of the Industrial Revolution, and that there were some other efforts to uh, cope with what was going on with these utopian social experiments, such as Brook Farm, famously. Mm -hmm. What did Thoreau think of those more collectivist living arrangements? 
he was intrigued, but as I mentioned, he didn't want to participate in them himself. Um, I think he thought they were maybe a little too de-individuating. And that's his, his, really his Walden Pond is his own uh, Brook Farm, but at the level of the individual. Uh, his mom um, did run a, uh, so his mom, Cynthia Dunbar Thoreau, did run a um, boarding house in the Thoreau house. So I think he probably got a sense of how that operates. You know, uh, theirs wasn't a collective. It was just a standard paid boarding house situation. But he probably just thought he would, it's not free enough for him. And um, he, I think he appreciated what his friends and others were doing on that front. He thought it wasn't a bad thing to do, bad thing to try, um, but he didn't necessarily want it for himself. And he thought a lot of the other people would not also. You, you, quote, you quote Thoreau saying, money is not required to buy one necessary of the soul. Yes. Uh, why... Why is everyone? Why did he think everyone was so obsessed with money then? I think that um, he he. It's probably something that he uh, wouldn't be specific to his present time. Too, a lot of people he thinks throughout history have been obsessed by money, but he thinks that we've forgotten what's necessary for life, and he. He, the, which is the necessaries for the soul. And he, he, he would say that um, he, he defines necessary for life as whatever of all that man obtains by his own exertions has been from the first or from long use has become so important to human life that few, if any, whether from savageness or poverty or philosophy, ever attempt to do without. So he's like, look, you don't need a lot of these things. Uh, you don't need uh, all the things that money can buy. So the chasing of money is a kind of disconnected chase where you've forgotten why you're doing it. It's default, it's convention, and he wants to shatter that. Uh, and he he really wants to say the, the aim shouldn't be um, uh, accumulate, accumulation of resources, but um, the development of character. He and he, he really just genuinely thinks money's not required for that. You can live very close to nature, very bare bones, and be way yeah. more flourishing. Yeah, and I, I would say that, that his practical calculations there in, in economy, they really do lay out a workable plan for living living pretty well yes and not spending so darn much money i i, I actually find it still very useful in a very practical way to to, to go read what he says at one point perhaps i'm writing this most for poor college students <laughs> uh so yes. so we're, we're going to recommend that you know your book along with walden to college students for, for now the book is henry at work thoreau on making a living jonathan van bell thank you for joining us thank you thanks for having me and thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.